chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. How many of you appreciate our praise team this morning? They did a phenomenal job. We appreciate them so much. And I uh, also appreciate them. I appreciate you for being here this morning. And uh, so if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're in the middle of the series, In Him, For Him. And what I want to do is try to help you to understand how the book of Ephesians is set up. And that's what we've been doing is making our way through the, the book of Ephesians verse by verse. And so when you see in him, uh, it's the whole idea of being in Christ. First three chapters are, are purely about theology. Uh, and then you come to chapters four, five, and six, and it's all about for him. And you're talking about just practical application. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. But today and next week, we're still in chapter 3, and uh, we'll be looking at that. So we'll be looking at some theological things uh, today and then next week. Today, the, 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 the subtopic is really a mystery revealed. Now, how many of you like a, a, a good mystery? You like a good mystery? Some of you read a lot. Yeah, look at you. It's like, should I be able to? Yeah, yeah it's fine to like a mystery, uh, especially some of the old stuff on TV, you know, when it was clean TV and the mysteries they had back then. Well, there's mysteries that are not only that we see on TV or in books. There's mysteries associated with God's Word. Now, the word mystery is used 22 times in the New Testament. 17 times by Paul himself. And of course, let me give you a definition of, of mystery. Anything kept a secret or remains unexplained or unknown. Now here's what you'll find interesting in the context of scripture when it comes to mystery. The emphasis of the word mystery in scripture is not on the fact that there is a secret or there is something unknown. The emphasis is that something is about to be revealed or someone is about to be enlightened. So it's kind of interesting when you hear mystery, you think, oh, there's this cloud of mystery. There's this unknown. The emphasis is not on what's unknown. The emphasis is placed on what's getting ready to be shared, what's getting ready to be revealed. And that's the whole idea of what it means when you look at the context, especially in the New Testament, of this word mystery. The purpose of Scripture is God revealing himself to us, namely where a mystery is being revealed. In, in Paul in chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians is revealing a big mystery. The mystery is, and we saw it really last week, is that all are one in Christ. So look at the introduction on your outline. The mystery is that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, which implies that there are no distinctions with those who are in Christ, those who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, those that make up the church. There's no distinctions. And so when you say, okay, tell me about the church, the church is made up of believers, no matter what background they come from, no matter what race they're a part of, no matter what nationality they have, it's all made up of one. And Paul reveals that in chapter two. We saw that last week. And then in chapter three, it's like he says, okay, I want to give you some more information as it relates to what I've just shared with you. And that's what he's getting ready to do. Now, let me just say this before we get into the message. The Jews wanted this news to remain a mystery. When you go back to the first century and you look at the, the, the climate of what was going on, you're going to see that when Jesus came on the scene, he basically threatened the existence of the Jew as God's special people. 
That, that's what was going on. That's the reason the Jews did not like Jesus, okay? Even though he was, he was a Jew himself. But the Jews in the first century wanted the mystery to remain a secret. The Jews were infuriated when Paul taught that believing Gentiles, Gentiles are those who are not Jewish, were full members of God's family and the fellowship of saints. Even in the church, many Jewish believers thought that Gentiles had to first become Jews before they could become Christians, or at least they should be regarded as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. The Jews disliked Paul's wholehearted acceptance of Gentiles into the church, free from all Jewish laws, traditions, and customs. There was that whole idea that, okay, before you can become a Christian, you got to become a Jew first. That's namely the reason Paul wrote the whole book of Galatians. But he's referring to it in the other epistles too, and he does it right here in the book of Ephesians. You see, they felt threatened by his zealous, far-reaching efforts to bring more and more Gentiles into the church. The vast majority of unbelieving Jews regarded Paul with horror and considered him a dangerous heretic. And so they named him basically an heretic when it came to this whole theology of who could become those in Christ. But that didn't stop Paul. The first thing I want you to see on your outline is this, the mystery revealed to Paul. I want you to look at verse one. It says this of chapter three. It says, for this reason. Now, the reason it says for this reason, it's referring back to Luke, excuse me, Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 through 22. It's that whole idea of what he's referring back to. So he's referring back to last week's sermon when he, the whole idea that, that Jew and Gentiles on equal footing when it comes to who Christ is. If you're in Christ, there's no distinction between you two. There's nothing there. And so that's the big revelation that's being brought out. Now look at verses three and four of Ephesians chapter three. It says this, how that by revelation, God made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, that's what he said in chapter two, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. What he's saying there in those two verses, he's basically saying, I've already shared with you the mystery as we saw last week. And he's saying, I want to reiterate that. And I want to bring some more thoughts to that whole process. And that's what we're doing today. That's what he's sharing with us today. So let's pull out a couple of words here. And when you see the word revelation, it literally means to reveal by taking off the lid, revealing something that was not known. The word understand here in this text means to reason and decide and when necessary, act accordingly or believe accordingly. So Paul is saying that he was passionate about making sure that the Gentiles knew that they were included in the new covenant and that they were not inferior to the Jew. That was his whole mission. Now think about Paul's past. He was a Jew. He was a devout Jew. He was a Pharisee. He, was, he, he described himself before Christ. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anybody was a Hebrew, I was a Hebrew. I, I mean, I was proud of the fact of who I was. He, he, listen, before Christ, before he had his encounter with Jesus Christ, he would have thought the exact same way as everyone else. That Gentiles were second-class citizens. That Gentiles were without hope when it came to God. And so now he's going to be one who's, who's shouting out to the Gentiles, hey, listen, you're included. You can be brought in. Isn't it amazing how God can transform a life? Next, 
the mystery revealed to Paul. The first thing he says is to the slave of Christ. Here's what's interesting. Paul, when he writes this epistle, he is enslaved. You do know, not enslaved, he's in prison basically. And, and so what's interesting about this is, is that Paul did not see himself as a slave to Caesar or, or a slave to Rome. Look at what he says in verse one of chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's saying, I'm, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. He says that over and over again. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at the verse here on the screen, 2 Timothy chapter two. He says this, Paul wrote this. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, that, that's Messiahship, as, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Now, think about what he's saying here. I am bound I'm a prisoner. I'm enslaved here. I, I am a prisoner uh, when it comes to this thing. And here's what I want you to know. While I may not be able to go out, I'm bound to this place. The word of God's not bound. It still can go out. And that's what he's doing. He writes many of his epistles from this location of, uh, of being imprisoned. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. The elect are those who come to Christ. That they... Speaking of the elect, specifically the Gentile also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So what was Paul saying? He's saying, you know something? I'm not a prisoner to Caesar. I'm not a prisoner to Rome, even though they've got me bound up. I'm a prisoner to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will do what he commands me to do. Next, the mystery revealed to Paul to the servant of Gentiles. He not only describes him as a prisoner of Christ, he says, basically, I'm a servant to Gentiles. Look at what he says in verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. That's so amazing to think about how far Paul's transformation came. Before Christ, I mean, he, he, he didn't respect Gentiles. He didn't love Gentiles. He didn't have a passion for Gentiles. He, 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 it's amazing what God has done in his life. Now, here's what's interesting. We're getting ready to look at a verse here or some verses in Acts chapter 26. Let me set those verses up for you. Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa after his arrest. So, so here's what's happening at the end of the book of Acts. The end of the book of Acts, the Sanhedrin has brought charges against Paul. One of the charges that we read, or you almost have to read between the lines to see, and then tradition tells us this is the reason, is the fact that Paul, here's what he did. He was accused of taking a Gentile and, and, and carrying him to the temple and carrying him inside where the, only the Jewish people could go. That was the accusation that was brought against him. Now, it sounds like something Paul would do, wouldn't it? It's like him taking the stand. Many people say that Paul actually didn't do that, but there's some thought that, that he did. So he's defending himself to King Agrippa, and Paul is accused of these things. He's telling King Agrippa what the resurrected Jesus told him. And so look at the verse here. He says, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose. The resurrected Jesus is talking to Paul. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. Seen me. 
And to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending to open their eyes. Now, when he says to whom I am sending, is a reference to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, let me just tell you what's happening here. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, the road to Damascus, remember the whole scene? Is commissioning Paul to do what? To reach the Gentiles. Now, think about that. What was he doing just before he encountered Christ? He was trying to destroy the church. Now, he's called to build up the church, listen, by means of Gentiles. Now think about how far, how crazy that is. He was someone who wanted to destroy the church who thought nothing of Gentiles. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, he just saw them as the rest of the Jews saw Gentiles, meaningless. And now he's being commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to not only build the church, but to build it by means of reaching Gentiles. Uh, that, 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 that's mind blowing to think about what's going on here. Next, a mystery revealed to Paul to the steward of grace. The steward of grace. Look at, the te- look at how this is written here in, in verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Now, now there's a lot to unpack here. The phrase dispensation of the grace of God could be translated and is translated in some of your translations as stewardship of the grace of God. Now, here's what he's talking about. Just as Paul, we are not only the recipient of God's grace. If we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're not only recipients of that grace, we're also called to be stewards of God's grace. Now, think about that. Now, think about what we've studied in the Scripture many times. We are called to be stewards of what God has given us, right? Stewards of our time, our finances, our resources, the gifts he gives us. But how many of you have ever thought of the fact that we are to be stewards of the grace he gives us? Now, that's probably foreign to a lot of us. But Paul is basically saying to us right here, he's saying, you're you're a steward of the grace of God. The grace that was given to you you are to protect it, you are to, to, to dispense, you are to, to send that same grace out into, uh, uh, to those around you. So, so here's what it means. To be a steward of God's grace means we are responsible to administrate or dispense the truth of God's grace or to minister through God's grace. Now again, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the Apostle Paul. You see, what's interesting about the Old Covenant and the way the Jews viewed the Old Covenant, there wasn't a whole lot of grace talked about in the Old Covenant. It was all by way of the law. It was keeping the law, keeping the customs, keeping those things. So Jesus comes along, and his message is not so much about the law. His message is about what? The New Covenant, which is full of what? Grace. So you had the Jews, namely Paul especially, who was trying to work their way in favor with God by being righteous, by keeping the law, by doing all the right things. And now the whole terminology of Paul is not not only that he's called to reach the church by means of the Gentile, 
But now he's called to live a life apart from works and the law. All about grace now. Think about how, how, big, how, how, how big of a deal that is. It's not now by works and then what I've done and what I've done to impress God. It's now I can't do anything. He had to do it all for me. And it's by his grace. He says we're stewards of that. Colossians chapter 1, Paul also wrote this. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. To make it fully known. You know what the, the emphasis of fully known? That that thing that was out there that was unknown is now known. It's the talk of mystery again. It's the talk of something being revealed. Now, grace, and this is not on your outline, but I found this, I love this definition. In simple terms, God's grace has threefold promise to it. It's God's unmerited favor, which means what? Giving what is not deserved. So, so there's three aspects to this grace we're given. God's unmerited favor. Secondly, it's a supernatural enablement. Have you, how many of you ever thought of the grace that you were given? It's not only him giving you something you didn't deserve, but it enables you. Okay? And then thirdly, empowerment for salvation and for daily sanctification. Grace not only moved me into the right standing with God, the grace that was provided by Jesus Christ, it not only did that, it sustains me daily. I need that grace every day <laughs> to get me through. And that's the language that we're seeing here. Paul had it. He's talking about grace. Paul have it. We have it. Both believing Jews and Gentiles have it. Next, we see the mystery explained by Paul. And first of all, we see how it was concealed. The mystery seemed to be concealed for a while. Look at verse 5. It says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. And so the whole idea is the mystery. It was concealed. Now, why was it concealed? Now, let me say this. There are two ways something is not known. Generally, two ways something's not known. Number one is through deception. I don't know, I don't know something because I've been deceived into thinking something else. Okay, so there's a form of deception. So I, I don't know something because I'm deceived about something or through ignorance, through ignorance. So, so there's two ways uh, of, uh, something's not known, through deception or through ignorance. Now, now, there's two ways to look at ignorance. It could be have never been taught but capable of being learned. Okay, you, you see what I'm saying? One way I could be ignorant is that I've never been taught, but I could be capable to learn it if I knew it. Okay, I know this is deep, but follow me here, okay? Here's a second way under ignorance. It's never been revealed and not capable of being learned. <laughs> Let me say this. Is that some parts of the mystery of God? It's capable of being revealed, but not capable of being understood or learned. Yeah, there's some parts to God's gospel that's all about that. Partially concealed, here's another way of looking at it. Partially concealed, the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan for salvation. Remember? You remember back when he made the promise to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He says, the, the nations will be blessed as a result of you. You know what that was all about? The Jew was intended to carry and make the, the message of God known to, throughout the world. That was part of the, the covenant. Did they do a good job? 
No, they failed. They, they took ownership of it for themselves. They didn't do that. So there's a partial concealment. The Gentiles have always been a part of the plan, but now it is a very clear, it's very clear. Everyone is on the same footing. So, so here's what you need to understand. When it, verse five seems to be the terminology of this, that yes, Gentiles were always supposed to be a part of God's plan. He was gonna reach the Gentiles through the Jewish nation. They took it for themselves, okay? It was unknown. The Gentile, most Gentiles didn't even know about the plan of God, okay? Because it was unknown to them. It was concealment there. How was it concealed? It was concealed because the Jew, Jews were not faithful to do what they were commanded to do under, new, under their covenant. But secondly, it still was not revealed because the Spirit of God was not out there revealing it to others. There was a mystery behind it. There was something out there. So how was it concealed? Next, how it is revealed. If it was concealed, how now is it being revealed? And Paul is making very clear that we understand this. Look at verse 5 again. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. That means it was a mystery. It was concealed. As it has now been revealed, this is interesting, by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Paul is basically saying that, that this new mystery that we can all come to Christ. We're all on the same footing. We all, Jew or Gentile, race, nationality, doesn't matter. We're all on the same footing. We all can come by the same way. It's all possible. How did it come about? It's being revealed, first of all, the Spirit. Okay, that's not on your outline, but it's in the Scripture there. The Spirit revealed it. Now, now here's something interesting. The Spirit is the one who moves on the hearts of men. Let me ask you a simple question. Has the Spirit ever moved on your own heart? Has He? That's the only way you're going to be saved. You do know that, right? Is the Spirit's got to move on your heart to bring the awareness of your salvation. The Bible says that. But here's the interesting thing about the Spirit. It moves on our hearts by way of inspiration and illumination. Okay? Inspiration, listen, is God working in the hearts of human writers through the Holy Spirit, inspiring them to write His Word. That's how we got the Word. The Holy Spirit was moving to inspire. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit moved to inspire men of the first century to tell us about what Jesus did? Aren't you glad for that? That's one way the Spirit worked. But here's the second way the Spirit works. It wasn't just something back there in the first century. It's something that lives on today, and, and it, we can be a part of this. There's something called illumination. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand, but I want you to think about it. Have you ever been illuminated to God's Word? That's when, that's when you see some powerful things. Illumination is the Holy Spirit's work of bringing light to the words of the Bible as one reads God's word. You ever, let me, here it is right here. I'm reading God's word. God, there's just something that I'm dealing with in my life. All of a sudden, I'm led to my daily devotion or whatever I'm reading. Maybe it's a chapter a day, whatever it is. And you start reading and all of a sudden, you've been crying out to God to give you a word about something. All of a sudden, there it is right there. You know what that is? That's illumination. That's God giving you a word for what you need. Hopefully, God's going to give you a word for what you need today just by hearing his word. That's the goal around here. Did you know that? That when people show up here, that's our prayer is that you be illuminated. That God's word would match up where you are in your life and you can see a true miracle take place in your life. That's how, that's how he moves. So we see, how, how did this mystery become revealed? Oh, the Spirit moved on the hearts of men. The Spirit moves on our hearts. Here's another group. 
the holy apostles. Apostle literally is, are those who were called and then sent out. That's what it literally means. Those who were called and those who were sent out. Paul was an apostle, okay? And he was one that was called and then he was sent out. That's how we learned about the mystery because of that. We can all be included in God's grace. Here's another group, the prophets. This is a group who speak the words of God to the people. Okay, that's the prophets. All three of these were working in the first century and the spirit continues to work today in such a way that the mystery can be revealed to us. Next, the mystery explained by Paul, how it was received. Now, your outline probably says how is, it should be how, how it is received. Sorry about the typo. Look at verse six. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. There it is. There it is again through the gospel. Now, when it says fellow heirs, here's what it means. One big happy family. One big happy family. If you want a paraphrase of that, it doesn't matter what race you're a part of. It doesn't matter what nationality. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic standing you're in. All one big happy family. That's literally what it talks about when it talks about fellow heirs. Those who are in Christ. Listen, fellow heirs, one big happy family of the same salvation in the same church, promised the same eternity, not segregated at the temple. That's what all that means. That's the mystery being revealed. Carry it a step further. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free. And it goes on and on and on and on. Everyone in one body. Next, the mystery transformed Paul. Now, I've, I've made reference to this already. But think about Paul's transformation. Think about who he was. A devout Pharisee, a person of the old covenant, once shared in the disgust for Gentiles, believed his own righteousness would give him favor with God. Let me ask you a question. Does that, does that bring favor with God? Not according to God's word, it doesn't. But realize it was his grace. When God, listen, when God gets a hold of a life, he radically transforms it. He, he does. Y'all, when you look at the life of Paul, who was Saul, by the way, you remember? When you look at him, you, can't, you know that he was radically changed. Everything about this man changed. And we see that. So how did it come about? First of all, look on your outline through God's gift. Look at verse 7. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. Now, let me say this. This is a grace that provided salvation that also brought transformation. That's what salvation does. Listen, if you believe salvation has come to your heart, there will be transformation. Something will change. Your perspectives on things will change. Your love for people will change. Things will change. They will radically be changed. Listen, if you say you have salvation, there's no transformation apparent in your life, you don't have salvation. It's something that changes you. It doesn't mean you automatically become perfected. That's the day still out there somewhere. It does mean, however, that there's a transformation process that takes place in your own heart. 
Now, what's cool about it, if you want to say, okay, how can I study how, how someone was transformed almost immediately, you can look at the Apostle Paul. If you were to say, okay, give me an example of someone who was, tr- who was transformed, but it seemed to be more of a process, can I introduce you to a guy named Peter? Remember him? It was more of a process for him. I would guarantee that most of us sitting here today probably don't identify with Paul so much because it seemed to be radical transformation night and day. I mean, it seems like from one day to the next. But with Peter, bless his heart, it was something that went on into the book of Acts. I mean, even when he spoke with power and authority, it went on into Acts, and he still was dealing with the things that were back there that haunted him. But you know something? God was doing a work in his life, wasn't he? Y'all, that's what we need to be looking to. Listen, when salvation, when the grace of God touches our lives, it comes as a gift, but it also, it's that transformation. Hebrews chapter two says this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? It was the language, here's what you're saying. This language of salvation came by way of Jesus Christ himself. He was the one who brought it about. Next, the mystery transformed Paul through God's power. Look at verse seven. He says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Now, here's what we need to understand. In other words, the fact that God could save a proud, self-righteous Pharisee and commission him to be an apostle of the Gentiles was a clear demonstration of the effective working of his own power. It was the working of God. Let me ask you another question. Is that same power alive in you today? It most definitely is. How do we realize that power is working in us? Listen by way of submitting to what God brings into your life. Listen, the the greatest way that we see power, the power of God working in our life, transforming us, only comes by way. The, The clearest way we can see it is through us submitting to what God brings into our lives. That's when we see it. That's the only way it was going to happen for Paul. He began to submit. You remember the question? You remember the road to Damascus? He's there. All of a sudden, the light shines in the noonday. It was a resurrected Jesus looking at him. Two questions. He said, who art thou? And what do you want me to do? What did Paul do the rest of his life? He tried to answer both of those with the rest of his life. He wanted to know more about who he was, who Jesus was. And number two, whatever you need me to do, I'm here. That's transformation. That's power at work. The only way it happened is through submission. Here, here it is right here. Colossians chapter one, Paul wrote this also. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, strive according to his working, which works in me. And how did he describe it? Mightily. Here's what he means. Very apparent. I see him working in my life. I am astonished at how he's working in my life. Let me ask you a question. Does that describe the power of God working in your life? How how many of you are like me? There are seasons in your life where you see God working. I mean, you're almost blown away by what God can do to your heart. And then there are times where you kind of get 
you know, your heart gets hard and you, you kind of resist it for a while and God brings something into your life that kind of, you know what he's doing? He's trying to bring you back to that point where you can, you can submit, to bring you back to that point where you can, uh, you can see his mighty work happening in your life. Y'all, I've been a part of all those processes. And it's God who wants to do a great work in your life. Listen to this. If God's gift of transforming, transforming grace, which equates to his power, was sufficient to transform a hater and persecutor of the gospel into a lover and proclaimer of that same gospel, is there anything in your life or my life, test, trial, temptation, circumstance, problem, or person, too difficult for God? No. He can handle it all. Whatever's there. Next, the mysteries transform Paul through God's grace. Look at verse eight. He says, to me, who, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now think about this. Paul was not exhibiting a sense of false humility, but a true estimate from a man filled with the Holy Spirit, a one who knows his true unworthiness in the face of the gift of God's grace and the perfect righteousness of God. Paul was not saying this to say, it wasn't false humility. Paul was someone who actually come to terms with the fact that he was once a self-righteous man who thought he could impress God with his own works, became a man who, who realized he couldn't do it. It was all about God's grace. And not only that, as he began to magnify on God's grace and not his own works, he began to see just how low he really was. I mean, that, that lets you know that there's transformation taking place in a person. Listen, if there's something going on in a person's life where their language becomes I, 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 me, 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 look at me, 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 look at I, 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 that's not the transformation of grace taking place in that person's life. Because when the transformation of grace takes place in a person's life, they become humble. They become people who see their unworthiness in light of God's grace. There's something else that goes on. Listen, in 55 A.D., we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We believe this is when it was written, around 55 AD. Look at the progression in Paul. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me did not, did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but what? But the grace of God within me. You see what's happening there? This wasn't a man out there talking about all he's done. This is a man who realized that anything that was done, why he even was becoming was all based on and warranted on what God's done in his life. We come to 61 AD and we have Ephesians chapter three, verse eight. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. Then you go fast forward to 65 AD or thereabouts. You have 1 Corinthians chapter one. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and listen, among whom I am foremost of all. Listen, as the years click by in Paul's life, how many of you would say he was a successful apostle? Very successful. But as the years clicked by, it wasn't someone becoming more and more prideful. It was a man who was becoming more and more humble before the heart of God. And you know what? That tells me that God's grace was transforming this man's life. The greatest sign of transformation taking place in a person's life is humility that comes about in that person. That's what you'll find. And that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. Now, let's keep working. 
Verse 8, he says, grace was given. Grace, again, in simple terms, God's unmerited favor, a supernatural enablement, empowerment for salvation and for daily sanctification. He's saying that's, that's what was working in my life. Next, we come, the mystery proclaimed by Paul, the persons of the mystery. Look at verse 8 again. He says that I should, mid part of verse 8, that I should preach among the Gentiles. They were the persons of the mystery. It's the Gentiles. Listen, if you're not Jewish here this morning, you're a Gentile. You need to be thankful for the grace that was shed in Paul's life. You do know that, right? Not only what Christ did, but what Paul did to get that message out, to reveal that mystery. Next, the prosperity of the mystery. Look at verse 8, the last part. The unsearchable riches of Christ. This is really good stuff. Your, some of your translations, instead of unsearchable, it says unfathomable, uh, immeasurable, incomprehensible riches of Christ. Well, y'all, we could spend all day talking about what these riches are. I want to give you just some. Look on your outline. The fullness of the Godhead. What's the fullness of the Godhead? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three are one. How many of you can really get your mind around that? You realize the word unsearchable means it carries a context with it. Can't comprehend. Can't even comprehend it. It's unsearchable. I mean, you can't go anywhere to find it. It's out there. It's big stuff. Anybody figured out the Trinity of God yet? Uh, uh-uh. it's unsearchable. Now, here's another one: forgiveness and pardon of sin. How many of you? Got, how many of you got your mind around the fact that God pardoned you for everything you've ever done? It's unsearchable. Here, here it is, chosen and elected God. You ever heard of the doctrine of election? You ever heard about what all these people are fighting about this day and age? About well, were we chosen or did we did we have a choice? Did we have? You'll never figure it out. Unsearchable riches. Won't comprehend that one. Here's a good one. Objects of grace, mercy, and his great love. And then here's another one. He's head of the church, which implies what? That we're the body. Can you get your mind around that? And here's another whole list. If you want to say, okay, what's some more of these? He actually listed them in in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. All these unsearchable riches are available to us. Next, the mystery proclaimed by Paul. The purposes of the mystery. And the first one there on your outline is its immediate purpose. Look at verse nine. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now, fellowship of the mystery could also be translated stewardship of the mystery. And here's what it literally means. To share or dispense what is necessary. Look on your outline. To create a church for all in Christ. That's what we've been called to do. That's the reason he's writing all this stuff. The immediate purpose is to bring all peoples together to form his church. John Piper in his book, Cosmic Church, writes this concerning verses 9 and 10. We don't usually hit targets that we're not aiming at. And the target for the church is to demonstrate to the evil powers of the cosmos that God has been wise in sending his son to die, that we might have hope and be unified in one body, the church. Therefore, when we fail to live in this hope and to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, we send a message through the galaxies. God's purpose is failing. He was not wise. He was foolish. 
Y'all, that is a great quote. We are called to be unified into one body, no matter what our background is. And when we don't move in that direction, we're dishonoring God. We're telling the world that he's not wise. Y'all, he is wise. He knows what's best. Not only the mystery's immediate purpose, but also his ultimate purpose. Look at verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to eternal purpose which he has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Manifold, that word manifold literally means diverse and complex. Wisdom is the ability to judge correctly, to follow the best course of action based on knowledge and understanding. Now, here's what you need to understand. Paul's point is that the wisdom of God has shown itself in Christ to be varied beyond measure and in a way that surpasses all previous knowledge. We as the church are to take this diverse wisdom, look on your outline, and to make God known to all in Christ. That's the mandate we've been given here. Today, this means that God's wisdom is shown even to angels and demons when people from different racial and cultural backgrounds are united in Christ in the church. If the Christian church is faithful to God's wise plan, it will always be in the forefront in breaking down racial and social barriers in societies around the world and will be a visible manifestation of God's amazing wise plan to bring great unity out of great diversity. Y'all, that is the one of the purposes that we see. You see, when we, when we look at the church, we, here's what we see. Here's what we focus on, and rightly so. We're the body, he's the head. How many of you just say, okay, that's the church? The church is intended to make the head known. Is that true? How do you make the head known? Here it is. The greatest way we can do that is being unified in the midst of our diversity. That's what he's calling us to. That's what Paul is talking to about this whole mystery. Here, here's another one. The mystery proclaimed by Paul. The privileges of, of the mystery. And I got to hurry. Assured through faith. That means it's unrestricted. Look at verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access. This is speaking of Christ. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The, listen to this. Those who once were socially and spiritually alienated are in Christ, united with God and with each other. Because they have Christ, they have both peace and access in one spirit to the Father. They have an introducer who presents them at the heavenly throne of God before whom they can come at any time. They can now come to God as their own father, knowing that he, is no, longer, he no longer judges or condemns, but only forgives and blesses. I want to carry you back to the chart I used or the diagram I used last week. You remember what happened at the cross? The veil was ripped in two. We see the most holy place. That's where only the high priest could go one time a year. The holy place, that's where the priest could go. We see the, uh, the court of Israel. The men of Israel could go, the Jewish men. The court of women, only Jewish women could go there. And then out here, you have the Gentile court. That's where most of us would be, would have been there. When he died on the cross, let me just tell you this we now can boldly come before him no matter who we are. We're no longer the Gentiles sitting out here outside the gates. When the veil tore, all the walls of separation came down. You understand that, right? Let me tell you how we know that. Let me tell you one thing that seals the deal. When Jesus died on the cross, did he die in the most holy place? 
He didn't die there. He didn't die in the, in the court of Israel. He didn't die in the court of women. He didn't die in the court, Gentiles' court. My son and I were talking this past week, and he reminded me. Guess where he died? He died outside the city walls. He wasn't even close to the temple. He, most people believe he was over there at the trash dump of Jerusalem. That's where he paid the price. Isn't that amazing to think? That God's son, if, if he is the, the epitome of what the temple represents, does it not only make sense that he'd be crucified right there at the most holy place? He was far from it. And yet, his death did what? It gave us access before a holy God. Access. But not only that, here's, here's, why so many people, here's what so many people want to do. Oh, I like, thank you, God, for the access. I can now come boldly. I can now be unrestricted. Thank you for that. But they don't look around and realize that the other walls were gone, are gone too. With races, with nationalities, all the walls are gone. We want the one with God, but some of us may second guess the other ones. That was the whole argument of what Paul was saying between Jew and Gentile. 21st century here in the good old South, it becomes more of a black and white issue. We need to pay attention to that. Next, the privileges of the mystery. It's only assured through faith, unrestricted, but encouraged through adversity, unhindered. Look at verse 13. Therefore, I ask you that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. He's basically saying, okay, I ended up here. I'm imprisoned. I'm a prisoner here. I'm not a prisoner of Caesar, not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and I'm here for your sake. He says at the last part, which is your glory. Basically, he's saying it's worth it all to do what God's allowed me to do. Here's the application. The call of the church is to be unified in displaying the glory and wisdom of God in Christ. This is the great mystery. Have we responded to this call, or have we been too focused on our differences and adversities? We are called to be one in him. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now. We just thank you for your word. Lord, I think so many times we get so caught up in our own little worlds that we don't realize that there's a big old world out there awaiting to hear the news that you came to this world to die for them. Father, I pray for each of us, Lord, as we look at the, through the lens of your word of what Paul was saying here, that we realize that, that, that what you did on that cross to break down that, that, that veil, to open up, to make access between us and you. Father, we thank you for that. But Father, I thank you for Paul who revealed the mystery that not only that veil was broken, not only that thing that separated us from you was gone, but also the separation of those around us, Father. Lord, help us to realize there is one God, there is one spirit, there is one church, there is one people in you, Father. And those people are in Christ. Lord, help us to realize that as we look through the vastness of this world, Lord, help us to realize it's not a black and white issue. It's not a rich and poor issue. It's an issue of whether we're in Christ or not in Christ. Father, help us to get our hearts around that. Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day they'll give the heart to you. Father, have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.